Hi, welcome to the BNA Talks podcast with me, Wayne Massey. We're working our way through Mark's gospel and we, 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 we have reached Mark chapter 10. Um, before we get into it, so what we do is we read and we talk our way through, but um, just going to tee us up, actually, the first part of this chapter is all about, I think, hard hearts. Hard hearts and hard hearts that stop us either receiving Jesus fully or seeing what he's up to or even joining in properly. And then the second bit is um, about the way the kingdom operates and uh, and the values of the kingdom and what matters. So hard hearts, kingdom values, they're two things to think about as we travel into Mark chapter 10. What I do, as I said, is I'm going to read a section, talk about it, read a section, talk about it, and then at the end give you some questions. So as we start, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And so we pray as we spend time in your word now that you would speak to us. Uh, we open ourselves, we open our minds, we open our spirit, our hands to your spirit, to your word to us through the Bible. Amen. Mark chapter 10, reading from verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So divorce was um, a big topic in Jesus' day. Um, there was a massive debate as to when it was allowed and for what reasons. Now, only a man was able to arrange divorce, and there was a kind of whole thing about, you know, where you drew the line. So there were some people, let's call them on the more liberal end of it, that basically said if your wife, you know, did anything to kind of disappoint you, um, you could divorce her, all the way down to the more conservative end, which pretty much only for adultery. So it's a big topic. And so what they're doing, um, it says the first two Pharisees came to test him by asking, is that basically, it's a question, Jesus, where do you stand on this big issue? It's almost like going to him, Jesus, are you Remain or are you Brexit? Are you um, pro-vaccine or anti-vaxxer? You know, it's that kind of like, it's a real test to see where in culture you stand. And what Jesus does so often when tested is he turns it back on the people asking the question uh, to why, what's going on for them, but also then to God's truth. So he turns it back. He says, what did Moses command you? So instead of saying, well, what do you think I think? Well, what did Moses say? Um, and um, he explains to them that Moses allowed divorce because their hearts were hard. Because of our sin and because of our fallen nature, um, divorce has been allowed. But the key thing that Jesus then teaches, going all the way back to Genesis, is that we were made male and female, different, uh, and that a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, joined together, and the two become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, he says, let no one separate. Marriage is a unity of two, a unity in difference. 
Paul um, will go on to tell the church that actually marriage is a signpost pointing towards the nature of the relationship between Jesus and his church, husband and wife, Jesus and his church. And so we see when we read Song of Songs, which is about um, human love, we also see God who is the beloved and us who is uh, the one he loves. I am my beloved and he is mine. And so Jesus says actually marriage is, it's not just about you and your wife, but it's about what God has done. It's about the world that he's created where there is male and there is female. It is about God bringing a man and a woman together, two to become one, and that unity and difference. And as such, it points to the relationship between Jesus and the church. We are not Jesus, we are different, but we have been united to him. So, so that's what he does. And so therefore he's saying it's designed to have this, this sign of eternity permanence. So marriage is a covenant, not a contract. So one of the things he might have said to the people who are questioning him is actually you're falling into the category of thinking marriage is a contract, at which point does the contract become null and void? It's a covenant. It's a promise that is designed to last. R.T. France, who was a writer on the New Testament, says um, the teachings of Jesus around divorce in our culture, are not straightforward to apply, and so we shouldn't pretend that they are. He's not telling us um, what to do, but what Jesus is doing is giving clear, uncompromising principles. So marriage between a man and a woman, uh, a covenant, not a contract, and designed for permanence. So, so whenever we think about applying that hard heart attitude into our culture, that idea that actually there are some marriages that it is right that they end for safety and for a whole host of reasons. And there are some marriages that end um, because things haven't worked out and we believe in a God of grace. Whenever we begin to ethically apply them, we must start with what Jesus thought about marriage, um, that it was God-given, it reflected the relationship between him and the church, and it was unity and difference, and work our way out from there. So I've not told you exactly what you should think about marriage, but I've kind of hopefully given you a tease into it. But let's get back into the text. What's happening is they're trying to get Jesus to line up with what's going on in culture, and Jesus instead chooses to, of course, line up to God's truth uh, and to what God was doing when he created and when he brought Adam and Eve into the world and when he brought them together and what it says about his love for us and what he was going to do to rescue us, to come uh, and to be the church, Jesus and the church. So you see quite often they get asked questions and actually Jesus goes, no, actually it's bigger than that. So that was 1 to 12. Just as I move on, I know for many of us um, this will be a hard topic. It might be that divorce is part of our own story or our family story or singleness is part of our story. And actually it might be good, you might want to pause and just pray into that now. God is love and he is grace and he is in the business of redeeming. So even if Jesus teaches clearly an uncompromising principle, as R.T. France says, grace is given so that we may continue to follow him and know healing. So just take a moment, pray for anybody you know for who this might be a live issue. And then when you're ready, unpause me and we'll roll on. Verse 13, the little children and Jesus. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, in his hands, on, in his arms, sorry, placed his hands on them and blessed them. So, if you're thinking about the culture again, back in the culture of Jesus' day, so, you know, these guys have come down from Jerusalem to test Jesus. Jesus is a rabbi. The disciples have left everything to follow him, but they're following this kind of rock star rabbi. So they must have felt quite important. And I can imagine them kind of 
kind of controlling Jesus' diary, who can see Jesus and who can't. And in Jesus' world, children were not that important. They didn't contribute anything. They weren't yet adults, and so they were kind of, they were there, but they, they didn't have any real important status. And so they would have been right at the bottom of the pile of people who should see Jesus. So it's totally understandably, again, in the culture, they're going, actually, no kids, Jesus is a bit busy, or he's a bit tired. But Jesus says no. And then he says, and the two things I think we need to hear, first of all, don't hinder them, we'll come on to that in a second, and then the kingdom belongs to such as these. And I think the thing there in terms of receiving the kingdom there's two things. Children have a simpler faith than you and I. Simpler in the Bible doesn't, and in theology doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Um, it, it means, um, as uh, G.K. Chesson say, a less tired thing. Why does a child keep saying again, again, again when we play with them? Because they haven't got old like us and they're not tired and they have a, a delight and a wonder that actually God has when, when every day he says, let's get the sun up again. And so actually there's something about that simple, wondrous faith that we're all invited into. But the other thing is a child comes to Jesus with nothing to give but themselves. They don't come going, look at all the law um, I've followed. Oh, look at all the good things I have done. Oh, look at the skills that I bring to the church. They just go, oh, Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, we need to come to him like that with just ourselves, because that's who he wants. He wants you. He doesn't want what you can do for him. He doesn't want what you have done to get to him. He just wants you. So the invitation is to come with a simple faith and to come just as ourselves. And the challenge is not to hinder anybody else from seeing that. What barriers do we put between Jesus and others? I once heard a story of a parish church on the edge of a city where they built a council estate after the war. And somebody turned up in the church who had moved on to the council estate and they got given out to by some of the old dears in the church or even the vicar, I think, for the shoes that they were wearing. And then about 40 years later, somebody I knew was a curate in that church and they met this person and they said I went to that church once 40 years ago and they I was given out to about the fact that my shoes weren't smart enough and I never went back what do we do even if we don't realize it that hinders people seeing that they can just come to Jesus as they are truly I tell you anyone who will not will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is God, good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Let's just stop there. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, this man comes up, good teacher. So he's looking to Jesus' answer a question, but Jesus says, why do you call me good? He turns it straight away to God, no one is good except God alone. And then Jesus asks him about the commandments, so the second half of the Ten Commandments, the one that the ones that um, deal with uh, how you relate to other people. And he goes, I've declared, I've kept all these since I was a boy. So he's like, okay, excellent. I've been keeping all these commandments. Surely um, I should get to heaven. And Jesus says, looks at him and loved him. And the word there is agape, the highest form of love. And then he says, you lack one thing, go sell everything, give it to the poor, then come follow me. The man's face fell. He went away sad. That word could be appalled. It could be angry. It could be offended because he had great wealth. Now, the guy's been keeping all these laws, but actually that, that's, and that's good, but there's something that is stopping him getting to the kingdom of heaven. Um, 
and it's what he loves, what he loves. Go sell everything you have, then you will have. See that treasure in heaven. His treasures are found in his wealth and in what he has. And so when Jesus says, will you lay down what you love of this life for the next one? What will I do to inherit eternal life? The man says, no. Um, when we talked about this in church uh, on Sunday, we said the first couple of things had jumped out of us from the text. The first one is a, a reminder that the kingdom of God, eternal, eternal life lies beyond us. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We live in a culture that says, look inside and find all of your identity and your self-worth and your meaning. But actually the Bible says, no, look to him to find all that. The second one is a reminder that our hearts are, are fallen and disordered. And so actually we love the stuff of this life. And that prevents us seeing Jesus and our need for Jesus. The man's face fell. He goes away sad because he had great wealth. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So um, lots of things about that. The first thing Jesus is basically saying is wealth will get in the way, not so much just because it's wealth, but because actually you might love it and it will give you other things that you love uh, and it will stop you entering the kingdom of God. That illustration about the camel, you might hear some people say, oh, there was a gate in Jerusalem and if you got to the gate and you had a camel and the camel took off everything the camel was carrying and then the camel got on its knees, you could just about get about through the gate, but it was quite a humbling experience. But it's still the camel doing it in its own effort. The point Jesus is making is it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. It's the same word as the man was sad, appalled almost, and said to each other, who then can be saved? Now, the reason they say this is because in Jesus' day, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. So here we have a guy who's got wealth. He's blessed by God. Here we've got a guy who says, well, I've kept all those laws. And then Jesus says, you lack something. You can't find the kingdom of God. So the disciples are going, oh, my word. It's like us going, Jim, Mother Teresa, all that she did, no good. They're going, if this guy can't get in, who can get in? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the gospel. What we love in this life stops us from getting the next one. Because our disordered loves uh, and our disordered hearts turn inwardly upon ourselves. Um, our self-satisfaction, our pride, our emotions, our energy are all turned inward. And because they turn inward, we don't look outward to him, to the rescuer, to the God that we need. But Jesus, his heart is not disordered, it is ordered. And his love is not inward, it is outward. And it is for us. So he takes on our disorder at the cross so that we might receive his order. And so what is impossible for us is, becomes possible because of the cross. The rich young ruler is unable to give up the stuff he loves of this life for Jesus. Jesus will give up everything for the rich young ruler, if only he had knew that. Peter spoke, spoke up, verse 28, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, nobody who has left home, a brother's sister's mother, father, children, feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think that is not about, oh, if you 
lay down the stuff of this life, you'll get even more back. We're not health and wealth Pentecostals at BNA. I think it is about realising that Jesus is all you need. We have left everything to what? Follow you. That when you have got Jesus, everything else will fall into place. And how you see everything else will fall into place. So, so you will find uh, a richer experience of home and of family and of possessions and joy in serving the gospel. But you will also be able to handle persecutions and the trials of life because you have Jesus. Jesus is all we need. St. Augustine says our hearts are restless till we find our rest in him. I'm kind of picking up the Ecclesiastes 3 where it says, what is eternity? What is man that you've set eternity in him? God has set eternity in us. And so our hearts remain restless till we find our rest in him. And when we do, uh, boy, do we fly. Verse 31, he ends it, as I said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And I think that's a, a shifting point in this chapter. So we've just been dealing with Hard hearts around divorce, hard hearts around not letting the children come to Jesus, hard hearts and loving stuff of this life too much. And then Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Verse 32. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. So we know where he's going. Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. (laughs) I think Jesus does that to a lot of people. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So actually, the one who is first is going to choose to become last. His attitude is going to be that of a servant. Um, He did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but to hold on, but made himself nothing. And he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? For you and for me. So when he says um, the first will be last and the last first, it's only what he models for us. He comes to serve and to rescue us. And God is the God who reveals and speaks. So if you think about your walk with Jesus, um, he will be speaking to you about what he is like, but also you and where you're headed. God doesn't hide stuff. He reveals stuff. So even though these guys don't get it, when Easter happens, they've got they have a memory of, oh, he said this, oh, he said this. We're still on the journey. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to, um, you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? I'll be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they'd be prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, I think, again, it's just kind of the nature of the kingdom. I think the, the request from James and John, Jesus has talked about he's going up to Jerusalem to die, but I just don't think they get it. They're going to Jerusalem. This is going to be revolution. Jesus is, going to be, is the Messiah. He's going to be like ruling, so he's going to need some guys on his right and his left. Why not us? That's probably what they're thinking. Uh, Jesus uh, basically reminds them they've not picked it up. Uh, you know, and so here's the reference to the cup he drinks. 
let this cup pass me, I'll be the baptism. So the baptism is to go down into death of Jesus and to come back up. So reference to the cross. Can you do that? Uh, they said, oh, yeah, we can. They don't know what they can. He says, but you will. But I can't tell you who's going to sit on my right and left. Um, and it's an invitation in the kingdom to serve us. It's an invitation to go. Actually, you got it wrong. Um, the way the kingdom works is come to me like a child and serve and um, not come to me with all your great stuff and ask for an important job. Verse 46. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Again, remember we give Mark credit. Um, so this A did happen, but B, he's probably put it here to go, do you see, James and John haven't quite got it. Uh, the rich man hasn't quite got it. The disciples probably hadn't quite got it with the little children and Jesus. The Pharisees who'd come to test Jesus hadn't quite got it. Do, will you let God open your eyes so you um, can see it? Now he starts calling out and the, the crowd tell him to be quiet because actually he's not, you know, he's not worthy for Jesus. But I love the fact that um, even though they're rebuking him, he, he just starts shouting louder. <coughs> Excuse my cough. He throws away a cloak, so actually he's throwing away the thing that he would be using to um, uh, collect the arms. So he's probably begging with a cloak in front of him. So he throws it, he casts that aside. So even before he's healed, he's already thrown away um, his revenue, as it were, for the day. And I love that when Jesus says, what do you want? He knows what he wants from Jesus. He knows what he wants from Jesus. And then go, says Jesus, your faith has healed you. Jesus loves us and he loves it when we come to him in faith and ask him to move and immediately he received his sight and what does he do he follows jesus along the road where is jesus going jerusalem so friends that was mark chapter 10 another good chapter do you know the bible's full of these good chapters so as ever three questions for you to think about what struck me about what god is like that's the up question what did i need to hear as a follower of jesus the in question and what did I hear that makes a difference in the lives of those I love and serve? The out question. Have a think about those. Maybe get the passage open again and read it again. Um, then pray it in and then also maybe decide uh, to do something about something that struck you. God bless you. And we'll be with you next week for Mark chapter 11.